Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. Is Ireland in the grip of another generation emigration? Well, a survey says 70% of 18 to 24-year-olds are considering leaving. But is Ireland really that bad of a country in which to live? And I'm here in Castle Pollard in County Westmeath where local people say they're fighting back against the government's abandonment of rural Ireland. And Queen Elizabeth comes home. The former British monarch's coffin arrives at Buckingham Palace as King Charles spends the day in Belfast. Join the conversation online with your comments and your questions on the hashtag TonightVMTV. Immigration, it's a word etched into the psyche of our nation. As times got tough, many looked across the seas for the chance of prosperity. Now, with cost of living and housing crises enveloping the country, that old sentiment is cropping up again. A recent survey showed that more than 7 in 10 people between the ages of 18 and 24 are considering heading abroad. But is the grass always greener on the other side? Well, let's discuss with my panel, Owen Curry, the editor of Air and Travel magazine, Senator Mary Fitzpatrick of Fianna Fáil, Independent TD Michael Healy-Ray and journalist and community worker Kieran Mullooly. And I'm joined by young journalist Rebecca Roach, who is in New York. Um, we'll come to you first, Rebecca, on this, seeing as you have moved to New York. You are not in the seven out of ten people who've considered it, but you've actually taken the plunge. Why did you decide to move from Dublin to New York? I suppose it was an accumulation of several different factors, but I have to be honest and say that the cost of living crisis was a major one. You know, my paycheck was constant, whereas the cost of living was rising and exponentially at that. And I was also at a point in my career where that was another push factor. You know, um, my previous job, what my contract and that was coming to an end and I was struggling to find another position that could compensate for the cost of living in Dublin. Um, and I combined all of those things and I just thought, you know, I had the opportunity to go to the States, so I just thought, take the plunge. So that does tie in with this survey um, from the National Youth Council that find, yes, the, the cost of living is a major push factor. It's a major trigger for people to consider a move abroad. But surely it's not that cheap in New York and elsewhere. There are many other countries as well grappling with the cost of living crisis. So, so what's the difference? Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, and that's an argument that I had from many relatives when I told them that I was going to uh, that I was going to move to New York. Um, and I suppose my thought process behind that was I am aware that New York is an expensive city, but I figured if I'm going to be paying 
an arm and a leg to experience life, I think I'd rather do it in New York than in Dublin. Um, and yeah, um, yeah. All right. And we'll, we'll come back to you to get your reviews after we, we come to the panel on all of this. Um, Mary Fitzpatrick, I mean, the argument here is this is no country for young people. Do you accept that the quality of life in Ireland right now leaves a lot to be desired? I have to say, I really identify with Rebecca because when I was young, many years ago, I emigrated. I went to New York like Rebecca. And, you know, Ireland was a really depressing place in, in the 80s. It was dominated by emigration and unemployment. Um, unemployment has been fixed. Um, but... This survey and, uh, of the young people, I think, is a really, really important survey. And I would commend uh, the, the National Youth Council for having conducted it, because what it highlights is that despite full employment, um, young people still have a lot of pressures and they're genuinely very concerned about the cost of living like everybody else. Uh, the whole country, it, society, it is on everybody's lips, the cost of, of living the increasing charges in our energy, our food, our fuel, everything. Um, Are you so worried, though, that it is driving young people away? I mean, this, this is yeah. sentiment right now. It's a consideration. And we've seen that not just in this survey, but, yeah. you know, looking back, there, there, there are surveys from elsewhere that would indicate the same. Yeah. All eyes now are maybe looking abroad because, quite simply, the accommodation is an issue here. Like, you talk about full employment, but those wages that are being paid, many would say they don't go halfway towards getting a roof over your head. Younger people, more likely, according to this survey, to report mental health difficulties, that challenge with accommodation, and spending a greater portion of their income on education and public transport. It is different now for young people. It is, absolutely, and... I'm a mother of three young adults, so I really do get it. Like, I get it from them directly and I get it from their friends. And I suppose my party gets it too. And it's one of the main reasons, I suppose, that in government we've looked to secure 20 billion of funding, capital funding, unprecedented funding to address the housing crisis. The interventions and the investment in education, not just at third level, but also at the earlier stages. Investment in cutting the cost of public transportation that you mentioned, free contraception for young women that'll be uh, available yeah. from tomorrow. So, so it is really important. These are real pressures that yes. young people are under. Look, and it's really important that government uses all of the available resources to address those pressures. Um, you know, I'm just, I'm just thinking what you're saying there about housing and you're saying that, you know, the government is tackling this. If you look at, mm. at rental pressures alone and yeah. you are talking about younger people in this country, yeah. they are more likely to rent. According to the Residential Tenancies Board, new rents increased in Ireland by an average of 9.2% in the first quarter of this year. And the number of new tenancies dropped by almost a third. Even in rent pressure zones, mm -hmm. it's swallowing up more than half of people's income. Yep. So while you say your party is well aware of it, mm. the situation isn't changing for people. It's, it's changing far too slowly for what we would like. But the reality of it is, is that that's why we're spending almost a billion now in terms of financial supports directly to low-income renters. So young people, people of any age earning less than, single people earning less than 35,000 euros in Dublin, Cork or Galway, they qualify for the social housing uh, income supports. It's not enough. That's why we're putting mm. 4 billion a year right. into delivering an increased okay. supply of social and affordable housing. It is really important that Let's... young people have hope and that they know that the government gets it and is investing so that they will have a secure and All affordable right, home. Many would say, Michael Healy Ray, that hope is in short supply right now. In this yes, country. well, first of all, any time I hear of a government supporting person saying, well, we're doing this and we're doing that with regard to housing, to be honest with you, they're doing nothing. Because if they were doing anything, we would be making progress, but instead we're not. 
Uh, recently, in the last couple of days, I was speaking to a builder who has built houses during the 70s, 80s, 90s, and up until now. And like he said to me the other day, we've lost this completely. When I was building houses in all, throughout all of those years, building housing estates, uh, you could always say, well, the guards and the nurses could buy those houses. And now he said the guard and the nurse can't, and that reflects on everyone else as well, because they're simply priced out of existence. The government are doing nothing. If you look at young people who want to build their own house and their own farms at home, and they can't get planning permission. So the government aren't seriously tackling. If you look at the delays in people getting planning permission, the whole structure of Borplanala and what has happened there, we won't get into it now because mm. we could finish up in court if we start to talk about it. So we won't talk about it. But I, what, I will, say, what I will say is that the government have failed dismally. And with this talk about this report and that report, that's not going to instill confidence in young people who quite simply want to be able to afford rent, they want to be able to afford to buy a house yeah. or have local authorities doing what they should be yeah. doing and building accommodation for them. Yeah, it's, it's just a few points that Michael is, no, no, is making there, that, though, about guards and nurses and teachers mm -hmm. and those... You know, those public sector jobs, the idea of a stable job yes. that you will be able to get a house, a house over your head, yeah. that you will be able to afford childcare, all of those things. There's no certainty around any of that yeah. now. And that's the sense that maybe is reflected in this survey. Well, it's factually incorrect to say that the government is doing nothing about housing. That's just factually well, incorrect. Succeeding. Michael, I didn't interrupt you. No, but I, I didn't, I didn't interrupt succeeding. you. I didn't well, interrupt you. And you've made some serious and spurious allegations about Factual. the government's about the government's commitment to housing. It is the biggest housing budget in the history of the state. Four billion euros a year, 20 billion euros over the lifetime of this government. Already this year, the target was to be a delivery of 24,000 homes. By June of this year, 25,000 were delivered. Commencements are up, completions are up, planning applications are up. Confidence is being built back into uh, the construction sector. Most okay. importantly though, Claire, young people can have hope that they will have access to a secure, affordable home again. That is again, a commitment. But do you know, not right now. Maybe well, not in the short term for Claire, people when we're talking Claire, about these rises that we're 100,000 renters are already being supported okay. directly, financially, I, to have a secure I want, home. I, I just want to bring uh, more views in here on this. Kieran. you know, this problem certainly gets headlines in the capital. Like, what's the situation outside of urban areas when it comes to quality of life, when it comes to affordable housing? Is it easier? Are the problems different for young people there? Well, I'd love to say rental income was a different story down the country, but it's not. Uh, we know, I mean, from the ERSI that, you know, 30% of, of the income of young people is going to rent, and that's incredible. And then you throw in all the inflation issues. But I would say one thing about it, uh, Claire, with regard to the general uh, uh, situation. Okay, 70% really sounds very high. But the age group involved, let's be honest about it, significant proportion of them always went abroad particularly after college, after finishing a first job, have an opportunity to see the world. I have a nephew myself, qualified as a doctor here in the city only a year ago, and he's up to left. He's gone to Melbourne and Australia. And he says to me, it's not just about the issue of, of the income, bringing home the income, it's the quality of life as well. And that's so, where we that's different that's where we to kind of travelling and want to explore the world. Like, he's a doctor, he's yeah. a qualified doctor, I take it. He trained here. Yes. What we'd like to see is him working in the system, and which we know not, has its problems. Why will he not? Because he says he, he, the system in Australia will give him better support. There'll be a better backup. There'll be better conditions for him to work in the hospitals. And, he's not, and, and he and his colleagues are looking around at the HSE and the overcrowded wards and the other problems. And they're saying, yep. give me a better quality of life, maybe 
maybe Bondi Beach and odd day as well and a bit of, yeah, a bit yeah, of good weather. It, it is. Odd. Like, I just want to bring Owen in here. Like, that sense that you get more bang for your buck, that even if you're working hard, you're working those long hours, when you have your take-home income, you're getting more out of it elsewhere, that sense that you, you're, you're not competing with high rents and poor working conditions, many would say. It's an interesting one because the places people talk about going tend to have the same rental problems, the same cost of living. They tend to aspire. There are lots of places much cheaper than Ireland. That's not where young people want to emigrate. It's, you know, it's, they passed as a foreign country, LP Hartley, but Mary did in the 80s. It's very different. It was a life choice mm -hmm. then. It's more a lifestyle cho style choice that now with full employment. They're looking at different things. Mm -hmm. It would cost the same for a flight to New York in the 80s, as it does now. Actually, pound for euro, it's, it's much, much cheaper. People can go abroad, and it's not like they were emigrating with the American wake of our, our grandparents' generation, because they're commuting back and forward, even from Australia. They go to places like San Francisco, where the renters, rents are horrendous, New York, Sydney, Melbourne. They don't go to poorer countries where rent and, okay. you know, all of that. And we have... There, although there is a cohort that does that. There are 80,000 Irish people heading off for the winter to live in Spain. You know, because it's not like we are... As, if we were in Rhode Island, the prospect of going to California for somebody would not be held up as some sort of national tragedy. The emigration of today is more a lifestyle okay. choice. And we're, a, we're a, one of the original global countries. We're okay, one let's, of the original globalised countries. Yeah, you know, let's talk about that, Rebecca, um, if you're still with us on that. There is always this argument, you know, th there's a cultural tradition in this country of travelling. We live on an island. When you're younger, you want to go off. You want to experience life abroad and all that it has to offer. And right now, it's different to the 80s because what Owen is arguing is, this is a lifestyle choice that you're making. Yeah, you know, I have seen that argument being countered that emigration is the nature of being young rather than the nature of the Irish economy. Um, and to that, I would say that it's very important to think about and for us to take in people's lived experiences. And my experience as a young Irish person, which is one I'm sure a lot of other people can relate to, is that you are spending a lot of time and a lot of money to get an education. And at the end of that, the expectation is that you will have a good paying job and be able to have a, have a nice life. Um, and unfortunately, a lot of graduates, um, especially those in creative industries, are being met with job postings that are offering them between 20 to 25,000 euros a year. Um, and like you said previously, you know, those kind of salaries don't even come close to um, affording to to pay rent or anything like that. And um, so while traveling, seeing the world was most definitely a consideration for me to move to New York. There were things, of course, that could have kept me in Ireland. You know, I have family, I have friends. I, ha I had a life in Ireland. Um, but towards the end, it actually felt like I was being pushed out by Ireland itself. And I think that that is an experience that a lot of people can relate to. You know, it's it's sort of been become coined that the era, the era of 21st birthday parties every weekend has been replaced with bon voyage parties. Um, and I don't really think that's something that should be celebrated. Okay, you know, it's interesting that um, what 
uh, Rebecca's pointing to there is that she feels like Ireland is pushing people away right now, Kieran. It's actually quite uh, poignant to hear it from somebody who's away who feels like this isn't a cause for celebration. Yes, it's good to go, but you don't necessarily want to leave your family at that age. Yeah. Um, and all, interesting, too, that a wage or a salary of 20 to 25,000 euro on graduation isn't going to get you to be, you know, arguably living in your parents' attic. I mean, if you, if, you can, if you can do that, if it's near a place where you can get a job. No, and I mean, she, 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 she said the key point there, wages. That's perhaps, and that's where there is a regional imbalance in this country. That's what well, I find the big issue. And she's quite right. People are, on the East Coast, perhaps in the city, are, are earning more, mm -hmm. and those in the, re, in the regions, and, and particularly in the Midlands region, because we've had a kind of a wipeout over the last couple of years where we've lost ESB aboard Namona, which were industries which kept people working in the area. Now, and construction, which was very strong originally, didn't come back as, as strong. So wages is the big issue. Here and how you can balance that, and how what government can do about it is the key issue. Because even when it comes down to small small pro projects such as social enterprise programs or community social programs, our, our state at the moment is not even paying the minimum wage to people on those pro on some of those schemes. So how do you expect somebody to stay in the community when they can't even get get the minimum wage from a program in, in, in their, in, from the state? And that's that's where she's quite right. I think the imbalance is very clear there, and there's got to be more done. I think in terms yeah. of providing an incentive for people to stay in their own area. And okay, some people will say, okay, you're in the region, you're in the, you're in the country, perhaps your childcare may be a little bit cheaper, perhaps maybe there may be an issue with regard to some costs uh, from time to time. But at the end of the day, if you're only bringing home 20 grand or less than 20 grand, you're not on the minimum wage. Yeah, and we'll talk about the minimum wage, that, that this announcement from Cabinet approving an 80 cent rise to the minimum wage, bringing it to 11 euro 30 per hour from the beginning of next year. Does that, do you think, Michael, offer reassurance to young people in well, seeing that 80 cent well, wage Jump. It might make them see that something is being done, but when we're talking about wages, if you take, for instance, what's happening in many of our community hospitals, we have beds in new hospitals that aren't open, quite simply because we can't get nurses to work in them or the staff. And that's crazy to think that we will train people, your young, beautiful, intelligent people, and that then they leave. We have to be trying to make it attractive for them because if they're going to get a lot greater pay to go to Australia or go to America, it's not just the weather is taking them there. They're going there for practical reasons that they can see that they will earn more money. If we want to keep a young nurse working in Kilmere or in Karasaivin in a hospital, in a community hospital, we have to make them see that, yes, that, number one, they'll have a better wage than what they're being offered at present. But also, very importantly, if you take a young couple who are starting out in life with a family, and if they think, for instance, because they hear the horror stories of uh, young people who have a child, for instance, that might have special needs or requirements and might be on a waiting list for three or four years for a psychological assessment, I mean, these are the horror things that are yeah, happening. And know, we shouldn't be allowing things like that to happen. If a child needs an assessment, they should get it when they need it. And they may feel that they get the help, they will get the help quicker abroad. Mary Fitzpatrick, we did this on the programme last night when we looked at the state of autism education for people with additional needs in this mm. country. The fact of the matter is, and it keeps coming back, and the HSE keeps saying it, and we keep hearing it from government, resourcing, we can't recruit, we can't get the staff, we can't get the occupational mm. therapists, we can't get you know, the, mm. the, the, the clinicians that are needed to help our vulnerable in society. And then that, that seeps into then the nursing world, the medical world as well, and, and beyond that. Yeah. It, it's, it's a, a real problem. issue. Yeah, it, it is a big problem. And it's something that we discussed at the Fianna Fáil thinking over the last two days. We'd Minister uh, for Health Stephen Donnelly there, um, Minister uh, Mary Butler as well. And uh, it was raised by a number of, of members. So what are you and, going to do about well, it? Well, 
it, there's an unprecedented, it's, it's not money. Funding, funding isn't the issue here, and, and we all know that, and I think it's generally accepted. Uh, there is full employment in our country. We have the lowest youth I'm unemployment in Europe. the nurses, I, I'm, the doctors. But it cuts across the board, Karen's Claire. Karen's nephew, it, it, a doctor, qualified, leaving the country, a brain drain. OK, I, I, I think taking the anecdotal and generalising it isn't really a, a fair representation of, of the discussion. There is a real issue with recruitment. The HSE, it has been addressed. There is a commitment there to accelerate it. But the thing about it is it's important to recognise that young people from the US and from Italy and from other countries are coming to Ireland too to live. You know, it, 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 there are real issues. They're indisputable around housing. That's why we've committed 20 billion to fix a decade of undersupply right. of housing. There are real issues. I, I don't want to in any way belittle that, but I think it is also really important to recognise that okay. we have a very, very healthy country to live in. It yes, isn't all doom and gloom. And, and there are a lot of good qualities uh, and a lot jobs. of young people are very happy to live okay. here. Okay, a lot of young people happy to live here. I mean, would you say, Owen, when it comes to the tech jobs that are out there, that actually what you're seeing is a big divide. There are the people who are earning really well, who can afford those very high rents and live very comfortable in places like Dublin and bigger urban areas. And then there are many who don't have those jobs and they just, they can't relate to this. A surefire way to solve our housing problem and it's one that nobody would propose is to close down all the tech industry and, you know, really empty our city like used to happen in the 80s or whatever. Part of the uh, problem with the pressure in housing is that we probably underestimated the scale of the success of all that in the way that the pharma, the software industries boomed uh, during the, during even during the, the, the COVID. So all of that is created by growth in our, our economy, growth in our society. And we are in this globalised, to the extent that 40, I think it's up to 43% of our health workers are immigrants. Our system would close down without those Filipino nurses and those Indian and Pakistani mm -hmm. doctors. And while... Uh, people are talking about, oh, the doctors uh, and the nurses will get more in Australia. The power of the Irish passport and the access to visas and work permits that we have that isn't available to the Philippines and Bangladesh and places like that means there's almost like a displacement of our doctors to somewhere else. Okay. And then we're taking doctors from countries that need them. I want, the I, want, I want to give a last word to this and Rebecca. Rebecca, what would bring you back? What would bring you home, having listened to that conversation? Um... I think one thing would probably be a reality check because I think the comment from Mary to say that, you know, we have a healthy economy and one with full employment, um, I would chime in with what Owen said and to say that, yes, maybe we do for people who are, you know, software engineers are working in other tech positions for large corporations. Um, but that hasn't been my experience. And I think that that is a sentiment that would be shared by a lot of others. So what would bring me home would be, um, one, you know, greater uh, greater access to affordable housing. Um, and another thing as well would be greater access to a better social life. Um, Kieran touched on it briefly there about his nephew, you know, saying that um, there's a better social life abroad, one that doesn't revolve, um, does, one that doesn't centre around drinking. Um, and I think that's something that I can chime in on as well. Um okay. And I think just, um, yeah, just, just, just greater hope for young people um, that you can live a good life um, and you don't have to be earning, you know, over 100,000 euros a year to do so.
All right. OK, thanks, Rebecca, for joining us um, from New York with your insights tonight, with your experience. We'll take a break now. Um, the rest of the panel will be staying with me. Coming up, we look at the issue of regenerating rural Ireland. Kira Doherty will have the latest from County Westmeath on a town that's doing it for themselves. Welcome back. Communities across Ireland have seen services disappear over the last number of years as businesses close or centralise their operations. Well, the people of Castle Pollard in Westmeath have done something about it. After losing a bank and an ATM, they took matters into their own hands, persuading an operator to get a replacement. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. ...ATM machine and turning the bank building into a digital working hub. Well, Kira Doherty is in Casa Pollard this evening and has the latest from there. Kira. Yes, Claire. as you said, I am here in Castle Pollard in County Westmeath. And just to give you an idea where I am, I'm about 20 minutes off the motorway, the M4, and about 25 minutes from Mullingar. That's the local big town. Castle Pollard itself has a population of about 1,400 people. But in the hinterlands, there's thousands of others living and working. And the community here was left devastated when Bank of Ireland closed its doors in October of last year. And six years ago, they lost. Ulster Bank, leaving Castle Pollard without a local bank. But the community here has decided to fight back and, as you say, are hoping to open their ATM 
very, very soon. And I'm delighted to be joined by Noel Kinnahan, Castle Pollard Local Development, and Pauline Smith from Murray's Checkout. You're both very welcome to Hello, the programme. And we Thank can you. see, I think, the 8 a.m. glowing there in the background, Noel. I know you, um, as a local community person, are delighted to see this. How did it come about and why? Well, basically, uh, there's a need, there's a big need for cash in the area. Uh, to circulate within the local businesses and uh, when we were left with no options the banks pulled out they shut two banks they took away their banking machines and we had to do something for ourselves this is not this is the whole community uh, trying to fight back so we worked with some of the local businesses the, the bank was bought we have plans on the long term uh, obviously that's our first step is to get the banking machine in so people can take out money, spend in the local businesses. And also we are looking at the idea upstairs, we're going to put in a digital hub because we have a massive pass-through of people. Uh, we have people moving back from Dublin uh, and they want to use us. And downstairs, uh, recently, about four months ago, the social protection office was closed and we're in talks. Uh, we've been writing to Minister Humphreys to meet with us to, so we can put our case forward and we, we want to reopen. The social protection office particularly now that we've uh, a lot of ukrainians who are integrating within the society they're they're getting involved in local groups etc so yes that's why it came about because the town has been hollowed out and we need to fight back and that's why we're doing it. and pauline you're one of about 30 small businesses in this town you run the local grocers uh, and news agents uh, murray's tell me about the impact of not having a local bank on your doorstep well, without having the bank, you're losing passing football because a lot of people have to travel now to get to Mullingar or Oldcastle to the nearest banks. And as a result of going to the bigger towns, they're taking their business with them, which leaves the businesses in town suffering. Now, it's not just me. There's so many of us suffering as a result of this. There's also just, you know, small little things like we'd have little charity boxes on the counter. You know, so if people had small change, they might say, you know, oh, put that into it. And there, a lot of them, well, two in particular we have, are local charity boxes. So even those small things are been missed out on because people have, are forced to use cards because we don't have, well, functioning bank machines here in the town. There are a few bank machines in town, but sometimes, quite regularly, the bank machines are down. It would be nice that that facility, is, they can still shop with us, even if our card machine was down. And one of the big concerns I know for you was, look, people perhaps could use some of the local public transport here and travel into Mullingar, the 25 minutes, but I know it's not regular. I think you said about three times a week. Yes. And maybe in once a day and back out once a day. That's correct. But that's all taking footfall out of the town, isn't it? Is. it? Yeah. From And it's taking footfall from all the businesses. You know, it's, it's great to have that facility but we would like to keep business within the town. It, it, it's good for the town, it's good for, you know, it's... It and did you notice a fall off in business when the banks left? We did, yes. Yes, and I think a lot of the businesses would agree that there has been a drop off in football. Because it's people coming in to do their banking and then perhaps they go in and they buy a few things in the news agency or they decide to go in and make a hair appointment or they buy something in a local restaurant. That yes. type of thing, that yes. type of spending. Yes. 
Um, what about the public transport options here? Are they there for local people? Well, look, we're, we're grateful that we do have them. Um, other than that, you get, you know, older people couldn't, who don't drive, etc. Uh, well, unless you travel by car. So it's not very green to be travelling 25 minutes, looking for parking, paying expenses, coming back, and then who's running her business, Pauline's business, when, when, when this is all happening? You know, so it's about, it's about having a cycle of cash moving around in the area, and then that money has to be banked. The town has been hollowed out. The banks are closed. If you go to any decent-sized town or village, they have a bank. And they were, you'll notice as well that they're always in a prominent position, but they're gone. They just left us. We did a kind of uh, some research and we looked at the idea of putting in a digital hub. So that's in the next phase. You know, there's a lot of money being spent here on this because this is about sustainability. This has been people able to come into the town to use it. They might want to go to the local coffee shop afterwards, etc. So yes, there is a growth and I think... Uh, Particularly in the digital kind of industry, uh, you're getting people that can work from home, but they need, they need. Sometimes you have families; it's just not suitable. So we're trying to provide a service for them, and obviously, hopefully, to spend money when they're in the town. Pauline, do you feel on a ministerial level that saving rural Ireland, saving towns like Castle Pollard, you know, ensuring there's a digital hub and a working ATM and access to cash is a priority for this government? I do. I particularly for the older generation, when they would have come here to the local bank... Sorry, is it a priority for this government, do you think? Do they see it as a priority? Oh, no. I don't think the government do see it as a priority. I think for the community, we do. Just your local banks, you had rapport with people. You know, there was... The government... Yeah. There was no... There's no... The government bad choice of words they don't seem to care about the smaller towns it's all about making the bigger towns bigger and better but the smaller towns they need to survive too it it'll all yeah. you know if we can yeah i, I think you agree to, no? yeah well, i think to understand uh, businesses you have to have you know relationship lending you know johnny out the road there does he have a good track record so you have this kind of soft information background information where you can give those loans out and it's not happening so it's killing innovation, you know, it's killing small SMEs, developing SMEs. And really, you know, we need the government to step up to the plate. When I look at what some of the ministers say, you see them popping up when they're spending taxpayers' money saying, we've done this, we've done that, with the other. You know, we have asked the minister to come down here and to examine exactly what's happening, to listen to our case and to see what we're doing. But we had no response, you know. And, you know, we are, you know, my, I'm, I'm originally from Dublin, which you can probably guess, but I'm here 30 odd years. My children grew up here. I know the town. I know the area. I'm involved with sports. You know, I know what's going on. So they really need to get in touch with what's happening down in local areas and not just, okay. not just you know, talk. All right. You know. uh, Noel Kinnahan and Pauline Smith, thank you for speaking to us here on the title yeah, this thank evening. Thank you very much. Yeah. Back to you, Claire. Thanks for that, Kira. Well, let's get more from my panel now. Own Kari, Mary Fitzpatrick, Michael Healy Ray, and Kira Maluli are still with me. And what really struck me from that conversation that Kira was having with Noel and Pauline there was the desperate circumstances, really, where small towns 
And she talked about the government not caring about small towns having to take matters into their own hands to fight for their own survival. Yeah. The, bu the buzzword is clear coming back from all that. The, the hot desk centre, the hubs, the digital hub, the, food, the incubator units, they're all happening all right. In fairness to this government and the last government, since we had the, the rural, rural policy, rural life policy came forward, we've had huge, I've seen huge investment right across the country mm. in these things. But we're, we're starting them now. We're only setting them up for the first time. In many towns, there were difficulties with broadband. There was an issue there. Another issue for the local community, which frustrates these people an awful lot, is the issue of matching funding for grants. We have an announcement from the Minister of significant amount of, of funding for a project, a digital hub. But that committee in Castle Pollard will have to raise 25% themselves and borrow it probably at 5 or 6 7 8% in the bank. Not easily done either. So it's a difficult situation. And there really has to be more given to small communities like that. You've got to get in behind them. You've got to get 90 90%. 95% support funding for, for these projects because at the end of the day they will keep people in they will keep people in Castle Pollard if That's they can get broadband if they can train if they can meet in an area get low rent they will stay and they will keep them in the town. Isn't That's that, a fact. Isn't that the point there? Isn't it in the state's mm -hmm. interest? Isn't it in government interest to, to help these small towns to keep um, a population there, to keep local economies going, Mary? Yeah, absolutely. 100%. And I really do commend the people in Castle Pollard, um, even if they're emigrants from Dublin down to Castle Pollard. But it is a serious point. And um, you're right, Kieran. Uh, our rural future uh, is the government's policy. Heather Humphreys is the minister. I would expect Heather Humphreys will go and meet with the people in Castle Pollard. I would expect her to meet with them, to support them, to actually enable them to, what they clearly want to do is stand on their own two feet. These are people who are independent and hardworking and absolutely determined to champion their communities. That's what the government should be doing, supporting them. And Heather Humphreys, that's her remit. And I would expect Heather Humphreys to meet with them and to support them. The bank's clearly very short memory absolutely left these people down. But these are people who are capable and hardworking and independent of the and banks and who owns the banks in this country, Mary, and whether there could be any input at all from a government level to stop mm. banks like AIB pulling out of a town like Castle Pollard. Well, Ulster Bank and Bank of Ireland obviously went when AIB and government had influence. Government did use that influence. And government has also used its influence and, and its money to support not just uh, financial institutions like mm. the credit unions and the post offices, Aye. but also the sports uh, facilities the schools and the housing investment, all that capital investment is important. Your point is, is absolutely correct, Kieran. I, and I fully expect Heather Humphreys will meet with the people of Castle Pollard right, okay. and will support them. You heard it here. So we will get, we'll get feedback from the people of Castle Pollard on that, whether that ministerial meeting happens. But Michael Healy-Ray, what you're seeing there in Castle Pollard, do you think it's reflective in many places across the country well, and thinking of your own constituency in Kerry? One thing that we learned over the summer months was we definitely can't rely on the pillar banks because we saw what AIB did. They made a big announcement that they ju just thought they were going to get away with it, shutting down uh, more uh, banks than you could shake a stick at. We were desperately being affected in County Kerry. And it was only when they saw the massive swell of support against what they were saying, but it showed how little they think of their customers, that they were willing to abandon them. In places like Kinmare and Castle Island, we were going to have nothing, no AIB bank. And people from Calaglan were going to have to travel up to Tralee. It was ridiculous. But thankfully, they rode back on that. But at the same time then, we know now more than ever before, we need community banking. The only place that we can do that is through our infrastructure of post offices. People like Tom O'Callaghan and myself and many others, I'm a postmaster, mm -hmm. for years we've been saying community banking is something we can rely on because our credit unions yeah. and our post offices, when many other banking institutions left us down, our post offices and, and credit unions were reliable. And we need 
uh, those type okay. of services in a community because people need their bank. Yeah, you can see how critical it is just, you know, from the viewpoint of even getting change in a shop and having money to actually spend in a given town. Own, like people in rural areas saying it's all well for all the high prices in Dublin and all of this that we keep hearing about, you know, the capital and other urban areas. But at least there's connectivity, you know, and there, 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 there aren't, they're completely different issues. But it's, it's, it's difficult. It's difficult at the moment for small towns around the country. It's a shared problem, Claire. It's actually quite surprising how the same problem has arisen in so many countries. Uh, in Spain, it is the single biggest political issue. It's led, it's politi politically important enough to have led to the collapse of the PPP as a force. Portugal, Italy, south of France. The reason we share with those, these are the countries that industrialised a little bit late and the denuding of the rural areas has been happening in, within this generation. The answer is already apparent from some of the other parts of Germany, Netherlands, places like that. As you say, the infrastructure is there. If Mullingar, if uh, Castle Pollard, if all of these places were connected with high-speed rail, with all the... I know they're talking about keeping the business in the town, but if you had a situation where students who have desperate problems getting accommodation to go to UCD or UL, are commuting back to Castle Pollard, getting mm. out there in the morning, okay. 40 minutes, 50 minutes, like they would in a, a, a Northern European country, and back in the evening. The, all of these discussions about the denuding of rural Ireland, they'd have a okay. different dimension. They mightn't have gone away, but they'd have a different aspect to them. OK, there we'll have to leave it. My thanks to the panel for joining me tonight. Up next, we take a look at the case of Enoch Burke, the teacher currently in Mountjoy Prison. School teacher Enoch Burke will be back up in court tomorrow, the latest in a contempt of court saga that has dragged on for a week. Let's go through what's been happening. Legal correspondent with the Business Post, Catherine Sands, joins me now with more. And Catherine, can you bring us, if you will, back to how this case arose, why Enoch Burke was suspended from Wilson's Hospital School in Westmeath and how he came to end up in jail? Yeah, so... Briefly, uh, in May, uh, the teacher, the then principal, sent a directive to staff basically saying, can you please address a student using the they pronoun as opposed to he or she? He disagreed. In June, he confronted the principal. He interrupted a chapel service, confronted the principal publicly. Allegedly, it was heated. Um, people had to intervene and stand between them. He disputes this and says that he only confronted her once. Either way, in August, the school informed him that he was being placed on suspension with pay, pending the outcome of a disciplinary process arising from those facts. So that kind of brings us up to where we are now. Um, on foot of that suspension, he continued to attend the school. Uh, the school actually had, ended up having to go to court, obtain a temporary injunction, which is a court order, preventing him from attending the school. He continued to attend the school. Uh, a judge actually ordered that he be brought before the court to explain why he was in breach of the court order. I think the school actually noted that he was sitting in an empty classroom at the time that they were in court then. So eventually he was brought before the judge. He was found guilty of contempt of court and he was jailed for breaching the court order. And that's where he's remained since last week. Okay, tell us about how this story has blown up because media reaction in itself has become a story. It's made headlines around the world, sensational headlines, because of, of the framing, I, I imagine, around this story and, and the reasoning as to why he's in jail and then a correction to that, to that reason that's had to come about since. 
Yeah, I mean, the story's been subject to fact checks. Initially, we had a lot of headlines going around. I mean, it's, it was in the UK media almost immediately. It's been in the US media. Um, it had to fact check itself essentially because people were reporting that he was in jail for refusing to use they pronouns, which wasn't the case. He was in jail for contempt of court. Um, so we did see a little bit of a correction, but I think it didn't, it, it lent itself towards sensational headlines because a lot of people were leading with quotes, comments that he was saying in court about his own views on transgender people, which were on the surface probably quite hurtful for the student in question to read because it was essentially denying their experience. Um, but then separately, they were acting as this kind of lightning rod for people who wanted to latch on to this idea or to this notion and use that to further whatever culture war they think they're waging. So we've seen this happen a lot with information that has maybe one part of it it relates to something contemporary in the, you know, in the media that's very gets opinions divided, and that gets pushed forward as what the story is about. So there was definitely, it shone a huge spotlight on the responsibility of the media uh, here and abroad in terms of how we report this. And I think, I think we are seeing a little bit more sensitivity to it now. And where is the story going from here? Because, you know, in addressing the court last week, he indicated he had no intention with uh, complying with the terms of the court order, that he would spend every hour of every day for the next 100 years in prison rather than compromise his beliefs. Yeah. Um, if he wants to stay in jail, is that how this is going to play out? How, how does that situation change and what's yeah. due to happen tomorrow? It's a, it's a very weird conundrum and it remains to be seen exactly how it's going to play out. The disciplinary meeting at which he could actually make his case and argue why he believes the suspension is unlawful is, was supposed to take place tomorrow. It's been suspended, it's been postponed because he's in jail. Um, he's actually going to go before a judge tomorrow and argue that the basis of his suspension is unconstitutional. Uh, so we'll see how that plays out. Um, the judge already indicated that he could have made that challenge any time after August 25th, and he had yet to do so. Uh, so we'll see how that plays out tomorrow. But it is a weird conundrum for the school because the meeting is supposed to go ahead. I don't think it's intended to go on in his absence, but if he's in prison indefinitely, we just don't know. And I think at the center of it is a child. And I think that's kind of the the sad and, and unfortunate circumstance here is that this person, this child, just wants to be, uh, you know, get on with their life. They didn't ask to be at the centre of this story. OK, Catherine, thank you for bringing us up to date on that. And we'll see how this proceeds in court tomorrow. Um, now, in other news tonight, Queen Elizabeth II's coffin has arrived back at Buckingham Palace. It was greeted by members of the royal family as crowds applauded outside. Tomorrow, the coffin will lie in state at Westminster Abbey. Well, earlier in the day, the new king was in Belfast. Charles and the Queen Consort Camilla greeted crowds at Hillsborough Castle, met political leaders and attended a service at St Anne's Cathedral in Belfast. Earlier on this, I spoke to Sam McBride of the Belfast Telegraph and I began by asking him if this visit is viewed with great significance there. I think the real significance of this visit is not just the historic aspect of it, the fact that this is coming after the longest reign in British royal history, the fact that it's the first visit by a king to Ireland, um, north or south, since the end of the Second World War in 1945. But the real significance, the, um, the, really, the really significant political aspect, the really significant constitutional aspect of this is that no British monarch um, has come to the throne 
with so much um, optimism, so much support and goodwill from nationalist Ireland as well as unionist Ireland. We have seen not one or two instances of Sinn Féin in particular showing their respect to the late Queen and um, really giving their condolences to the new King, but we've seen multiple members of Sinn Féin. I counted, I think, was it five or six at the um, the service in Belfast today. There were other um, instances of Sinn Féin meeting the King elsewhere at Hillsborough today. That's really significant. There was an interesting interaction as well, wasn't there, when King Charles met with representatives of the North's political party, including Sinn Féin Vice President Michelle O'Neill, um, with Geoffrey Donaldson looking on and, and, a, and a funny interaction there. Yes, and there was there was a real sense of relaxation in that room. This is a very formal occasion. Um, it's slightly awkward. Someone who is who was a very significant figure um, has just died. There is a new monarch. That's not comfortable for Sinn Féin. But there, there there was there was joshing almost between Sinn Féin and the DUP, where the new king asked Sinn Féin, um, saying that he had heard that they were the biggest party now, and Alex Maskey of Sinn Féin chirped up and said. Don't be telling Jeffrey that. And so there was an element of this, yes, being a very serious occasion, a very significant occasion, but also something where these are people who now are comfortable in each other's presence. Uh, it wasn't just Charles in town. Liz Truss was with him and the Taoiseach in his first meeting with Liz Truss as Britain's new prime minister. Brexit issues clearly not far from the agenda, even though they might have been uh, civil to each other today. In, in sitting next to each other at the ceremony and at the get-together? I'm sure that in the margins, um, as the Taoiseach and Liz Truss waited for um, the service to begin and in the, in the margins over coming days at the funeral and elsewhere, there will be a chance for discussions about Brexit. I think that it's clear none of what happened today or over recent days is going to solve any of the problems at Stormont. However, I think that without the sort of decorum that we have seen, the sort of really unanimous respect from Stormont's often disputatious um, uh, uh, senior leaders and from, from people who really can be very petty in some of their disputes. This, this was something where all of them showed impeccable decorum. That doesn't get Stormont back, but it would have been a lot harder to get Stormont back without that. Okay, Sam McBride, Northern Ireland editor with the Belfast Telegraph. Thank you for joining us tonight. And that is it from us. Our programme is available as a podcast on all major platforms. You can also now find us on Instagram tonight, VMTV. But from all the late team here, good night. Take care. Virgin Media Originals podcast series.